Welcome to Risk Roundup. From gold coins to paper currency to credit cards, money, which is basically a way to pay for goods and services, has periodically changed forms over the years. While each form looked different from the previous one, one thing that remained constant has been that they have always been backed by governments. However, the evolution in money we are seeing now is very different than the previous ones. The emerging evolving format of money cryptocurrency brings nations an entirely different kind of monetary system that is not backed by any government or bank, but is created entirely through computer code. As cryptocurrency gains in value and users, so does the threat of security breaches, theft or hacks. So the question is, when cryptocurrency is digital and does not exist in any physical form and is not even stored or regulated by any government body, how does one keep it safe and secure? How does one protect this new form of money, cryptocurrency? To discuss how to protect cryptocurrency further, I'm delighted to welcome Philip Raymond from Cripsa to Risk Roundup. Philip is a co-chair of Cripsa, a cryptocurrency standards association based in the United States. Welcome, Philip. We're honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you, Jayshree. I'm glad to be here. Wonderful, Phil. So let's begin by talking about the current state. It seems that the cryptocurrency users are increasingly choosing anonymous digital currencies. While cryptocurrencies seem to be the safest monetary instrument to transfer value between any number of anonymous parties, is cryptocurrency safe for individuals or even entities who are not tax savvy? I think that it's a slowly evolving situation. Uh, cryptocurrencies, regardless of whether you support them or believe that it's a currency or just a payment instrument or just a bubble, regardless of your opinions on the efficacy of the currency, Cryptocurrencies are uh, inherently risky for people who don't take extreme precautions on the evolving standards or practices. Now, that said, that makes it sound like it's not worth it for the average person. If you're not a geek or a nerd and you're not going to um, religiously maintain your keys and your security and your anti-hacking and your ports, it sounds like it's not worth it. My, my opinion is it's not right now unless you have a custodial relationship, unless you trust Coinbase or, or Bitstamp or some company to manage that process for you. If you don't trust someone to manage that process for you, and that's a whole separate set of risks, then my opinion is that over the next year or 18 months, we'll start to see sufficient standards and practices emerge, mostly by the wallet companies, such that the risk is greatly reduced. I wanna emphasize that at one point, keeping your, your cash, your money in a bank was considered very risky. Before the Civil War, it was extremely risky because banks were often robbed. They were broken into and the money that was taken was yours. It wasn't a, a government guarantee or anything like that. And a lot of people thought they would never trust a bank, but their children and their children's children started to realize as standards and practices evolved, as uh, certain guarantees evolved, people realized this may be safer than trying to keep my money in my mattress or my stagecoach or wherever else I was keeping it. I think this will be will rapidly happen with Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies. It's happening right now. The two major wallet companies, two major hardware wallet companies, uh, Trezor, which is located in the Czech Republic, and uh, Ledger Wallet, which is located in France, 
are dramatically upgrading their standards and practices using outside auditors. Uh, a lot of people have a question, what happens if I lose my wallet? What happens if someone steals it? What happens if a truck runs over it? It turns out these are these have good answers. They're being addressed. You're not really keeping your money in your hardware wallet. Your money's on the blockchain. You don't need your hardware wallet. You only need to know a list of words called seed words. All these things are becoming more simple and more uh, easy to adhere to. And I think the time frame is 12 to 18 months before the average person can consider it low risk to begin using cryptocurrency. Good. I mean, that's a fair assessment, but uh, we will talk about each of those variables one by one. But before we go further, since cryptocurrencies are decentralized and there is no central authority or governing body, what security challenges cryptocurrency faces today because of that uh, very reason that there is no central authority or governing body? Well, as you point out, um, there's no mitigating um, there's no middleman who's going to reverse a transaction. You make a mistake. Um, most of those mistakes are caught. For instance, if you send to a, uh, if you make a typo in your Bitcoin address, you, sh you shouldn't really be typing a Bitcoin address. You should be cutting and pasting directly from the source or photographing a, key, uh, a code, a barcode. But if you do make a mistake in a Bitcoin address, the chances of it actually going somewhere rather than bouncing back to you are astronomically low. They're less than one in the number of stars in the, in the universe. So there are inherently built-in safety features. However, that doesn't mean you can't be scammed. It doesn't mean that there are people who are not trying hard to infect your computer and figure out what you're doing and, and get access to your wallet. So you're right. There is no, it, it's, it, it's what Bitcoin, uh, what crypto enthusiasts like to call immutable. The transactions are at your discretion and can't be reversed without you and the other party both agreeing to reversing the transaction. Now, that doesn't mean that these massive frauds where, where $2 billion or $3 billion is stolen can't be reversed. Those can be, and it's already happened two times. Um, by the, the miners can agree that this was such an egregious or massive failure that they can redefine how the formula works to exclude certain coins that are legitimate solutions to the Bitcoin miners problem and reissue them. But that's not something that's going to happen for $100,000 or $200,000. That's only going to happen if the whole system is at risk of not being trusted anymore. So getting back to your question, what can be done about this? Again, it gets back to standard and practices. It has to get to the point where people feel comfortable enough entering the system that they don't feel they're going to die in the process. And I'm going to use an absurd example, but the early horseless carriage, the early cars were risky to get into. They would break down. They would smash into the things. There were no seatbelts. There were no rules. There were no driver's licenses when my own father started driving here in the U.S., but eventually, it got to the point where most individuals, not, not a particular neighbor who lives next to me, but most individuals aren't afraid to step into a car. The safety processes and the standards and practices evolved to the point where you realize that if you have to go 15 miles away, it's safer to go by car than to take a bicycle or a walk. The same thing is happening with Bitcoin. It's not, it's not going to be a scary situation 18 months from now. I really give it that time frame. Let's hope so. But I mean, the point that you made about copying paste the barcode, it brings its own sets of security risk. And we'll discuss that uh, at a later part uh, during this yes. session. But uh, since cryptocurrency seems to have been created for this computer literate and not for common man, from my assessment, it's not created for common man. It is created for, for computer literate who can do computing, who can do mining. 
this this isn't designed for masses. So government doesn't know how to do mining, and it seems well, this don't is have to complex do. for them. You don't have to mine Bitcoin to accept it in your business or to spend it. True. And uh, again, I would argue that the early VCR, uh, you're probably not as old as me, but the early VCRs before there was Betamax and VHS were these Sony U-Matic machines used by car dealerships to show off how their, their cars were manufactured and used by college uh, audiovisual um, rooms to tape record lectures. And they were nothing simple. They were very complex. I, I operated them for my college and they were, um, they, they had no timers. They had no tuners. The video inputs were often incompatible and they were, they were a complex machine meant for a geek. But eventually it got to the point where not just VHS, but every single cell phone has a camera and everyone can record high quality by just pressing a button. The same sure. thing really is happening with Bitcoin. Sure. And that is a fair point, Phil. But here the difference is that people who know how to do mining, they can they have a, you know uh, one step, they are ahead, you know, by one step. Then the common man, yes, the common man can go ahead and buy those cryptocurrencies and then they can trade just like you know everyone else. But the people who are expert in mining, they have they have an advantage here because they can do mining and they can create this cryptocurrency for their benefit. So I think that this is not a level playing field. This is, you know, very, very biased field where, you know, uh, people who are technologically savvy, you know, they, they have a better advantage and they can create wealth from nothing. Whereas the common man, they cannot do that. So that is the biggest, you know, drawback or weakness I see that in the crypto cryptocurrency market. I accept your point if you're talking about speculation and investing in Bitcoin. Even among speculators, though, 18 million Bitcoins have already been unearthed. There's only 3 million left to find. And it's not a, and, that, and that's over the next 110 years, keep in mind. So it's not really a, a major advantage. But I agree with you. The playing field isn't level because miners have certain powers and how Bitcoin evolves that the users don't. Personally, and this doesn't directly address your question, but personally, I believe that solution will be solved when everyone becomes a miner. I believe eventually the wallet companies will make all of us miners doing a small amount of work in the background to validate other people's transactions. And that will create a larger hamming distance between users. It will create a more secure network where everyone participates in a system that's harder to game. But that aside, Mining isn't, it's not truly a major advantage. It's an advantage in governance of the system. And the miners have a strong incentive not to abuse that governance in the system. They don't have the same, uh, this is an important point, they don't have the same objectives as users and vendors, and that's creating a governance crisis. But they don't have a motive or an incentive to game the system because they will lose everything of the value that they've mined if they game the system. And incidentally, I just came back from a conference in Dubai. Miners, and I met some major miners there, most miners don't speculate. They want to be paid in dollars or francs or euros instantly. They don't want to... Choosing to invest in Bitcoin is a completely separate issue from saying, I'll be a subcontractor and I'll run the, the trash compactor in the basement of the building, but I want to be paid for that. And yes, the trash compactor produces Bitcoins, but they don't want Bitcoins. They want cash. Some of them keep their Bitcoins because they see this ever rising slope and they say, oh, maybe it'll continue to rise. So I'll keep it in Bitcoins. But many of those miners are, are very staid, conservative, older investors who have learned that mining produces something and they just want the proceeds of that in cash. 
Yes, I mean, I, I hope that what you are saying about uh, that in the coming years, everybody would be able to mine or everyone would be literate enough. But that is uh, that we are far, far from that. Computer literacy is uh, illiteracy, I would rather say. is a big, big problem right now. And it's a major risk, you know, as far as the digital systems go. So to, you know, c bring everyone, you know, the masses to a level where they all would be able to mine or they all would be able to bring the security security to their uh, you know financial or monetary system that personally that they have that where they're involved it's a you know probably 100 years away i i it's it's going to be a very complex task but even if we talk about technology literate individuals who are you know uh, who understands what are the security vulnerabilities and challenges and who knows what they are doing things can still go wrong. For example, computers could crash, hard drives could fail, USB sticks can uh, die or they can uh, get lost or stolen. Uh, I mean, any you click on any link and that could end up being, um, you know, create a lot of security problems for you. So it seems that when we are trying to create a monetary system or, you know, a way, uh, cryptocurrency, where the... And, you could use any computer, you could use any phone, you could use uh, uh, any uh, different uh, mode of, you know, networking like uh, Wi-Fi or uh, Ethernet cable or many different, you know, uh, vulnerabilities can emerge because of that. So here, uh, while the cyber illiteracy is there and cyber security is a major, major problem, that is, I think, you know, the biggest uh, concern here because cybersecurity is becoming a primary concern as far as the computer uh, cryptocurrencies go. Okay, there, you've covered several issues. Let me let me try and keep them straight in my head. Um, you began with the issue of mining still. I want to uh, use one more, uh, not analogy, but one more um, actual example here. My My daughter's boyfriend is 18 years old. He's a freshman at college. He mines. And he makes a little bit of money. He has a couple of mining rigs, but most of his mining is done by joining a company called Nice Cash, which is one of the major miners. They were in the news a lot lately. They had a major theft, and they they covered the theft for their users, fortunately. But and and that brings up a whole separate set of issues of trust and and bankruptcy and and theft. But the point is, he's not an expert. He doesn't know what algorithms are being used to mine. In fact, when I asked him, "What are you mining?" and he, his comment was. I think this week I'm mining Ethereum Classic, but I'm not sure. I said, what do you mean you're not sure? And he said, well, when you belong to the mining pool, they give you an audit trail so that you can see how much you're earning and, and see if they're stealing anything. But the actual algorithm of what's being mined, they're controlling it second by second. They're trying to mine whatever they think is going to be the most profitable. So he certainly doesn't have to be an expert. He just needs to know, am I going to risk uh, $500 a month or $50 a month, which I think is closer to what he's risking. And am I going to mine? And for that $50 a month that he's putting up, he's getting about $59 a month in return. And because his electricity is cheap, uh, actually, he's not using electricity for the for the mining, uh, cloud computing mining. He's making a little bit of money. It doesn't take expertise. Now, the other issues you, you touched on, um, there is a risk in clicking a link. Even if you order a hardware wallet, um, the Tracer is manufactured in Czechoslovakia. You don't know if DHL, somewhere along the line, someone took out the Tracer, put in a spoof Tracer, and now you have a device that's not even the device you think it is, and it's going to monitor your passwords and your Bitcoins. So there, there are 
certain risks. Again, I go back to standards and practices solving these risks. But the major risk I see is the misunderstandings and the fear that governments have and that people think that governments have. We haven't even touched on that one. I, I hope we get into that. But there's a, uh, I used to say it was a misconception among governments that Bitcoin facilitates crime and opaqueness, that it's not transparent. I'm no longer saying that. There is a risk of, of uh, Bitcoin um, being too anonymous because of the Lightning Network, which, as you know, is about to be overlaid on Bitcoin. In fact, Coinbase is doing it this week. The Lightning Network does allow you to go deep, deep, deep anonymous. It adds a user option that lets you process your transactions through the Tor Network. It goes very deep. It goes dark web, web deep to allow two people to remain off the blockchain and create private channels for transmission. And these transactions never go on the blockchain until these two parties no longer trust each other. So this does create a problem. It creates a fear that governments are going to think that Bitcoin is, uh, is or not just Bitcoin, but Zcash, Monero, anything that's got privacy baked into it. It's going to create the fear that these coins are tools of criminals. I don't believe they're tools of criminals, but that's an, a third concern. Uh, there, there's the hacking, there's the uh, different goals that miners have over users, and now there's this government fear. All of those are legitimate concerns. They're all being worked out, and they're being worked out to the point where you and I and Joe Sixpack, everyone around us, is going to begin to realize that Bitcoin is a form of cash that's trustworthy, that's backed by more than our, than our government-issued currency. It, it's a transformation that I really believe in. It's a, I'm evangelist for a reason. I can I can see why it's so trustworthy in the long run. No, I am right. right. My biggest my concern. Sorry, there's my biggest concern is that you know when we set out to create this digital you know age, when we set out to use technology and use that technology to redesign and redefine systems all systems to make them more accountable, transparent, or cost-effective, and uh, uh, some things, systems that can provide us trust because the trust has been lost in most of the systems uh, over the years. So when we set out to redefine, redesign this monetary system in the form of cryptocurrency, that's what we were hoping for, that this will give us, you know, the security that we are looking for. This, this will give us the transparency, accountability and uh, uh, authenticity, and it will give us the trust. But look at this. I mean, right now, any thief, anybody can, if you lose that keys or if you lose your wallet or computer crashes, that is gone. Your money is gone. If you, if someone forces you to, you know, give you your, uh, your key, then, you know, and uh, in data and information, then your money is gone. So that, there is nothing that ties your identity to the money, to, to the cryptocurrency. Well, let, let's face it. I mean, someone can hold a gun to your head when you yes. go to an ATM or force you to give them your cash transfer password for your bank account. I, I really, uh, not to, to argue with the point, but I really don't see that as the major concern. I think the major concern uh, is, is government. Governments are worried about the liquidity of their fiat currency being siphoned away and losing control over monetary policy. And so a lot of governments are going to fight the, the transfer of trust to Bitcoin. Now, I think you really focused on the issue when you, when you mentioned trust. Bitcoin's main advantage, and not just Bitcoin, uh, whatever cryptocurrency wins this game, the main advantage is trust. Right now, 
We have a currency system that allows governments to tax and spend and enforce tax collection. A lot of people think those things don't work with, with Bitcoin. They do. Governments can still tax. They can still spend. They can still enforce tax collection. What they can't do, if this becomes the new form of cash, if this is how the if this is the evolution of commerce, what they can't do is they can't have the hidden tax of inflation anymore. They can't use the printing press alone to affect social policy or to water down everyone's wealth because of a new war or a rocket to Mars or building bridges. Instead, they need to raise money by legitimately taxing their population or by borrowing from someone who truly believes in their ability to repay, not just someone who's threatened by the possibility that the government might just print more currency to solve the problem. I believe, and this isn't something you directly asked about, but I believe that this is a good thing for governments, not just for people in business. It's a good thing for governments because of what you just said. It, tr it creates enormous trust when a government is not in control of its own monetary policy. Suddenly, national governments will have to balance their books. And you know what? Everyone else in the world has to balance their books. Every state, every principality, every company, every NGO, every organization and enterprise, and you at home have to balance your books. It doesn't mean you can't borrow. It doesn't mean you can't get food stamps if you're, if you're poor. But if you don't balance your books, then suddenly you run out of money. Governments are going to have to do the same thing. They're not going to be able to just define money by printing. it. They're going to have to rely on the mathematics of something that's immutable. Of course, there is, there is no argument there, Phil. I mean, we want governments, each government, to balance the books. There is no argument there. We know the flaws of the current system. But at the same time, what we are creating, we, we need to make sure that we take every step and we consider every possible variable so that we protect each and every citizen across nations. Because, from, you know, you, you give an example that someone could put a gun on your head and, you know, make you withdraw the cash from the bank. But how many, how many people every single day can go through those kind of challenges or those kind of security threats? Here, we are talking about computers. One malware, one, you know, virus, one, you know, uh, hacker can destroy so many people's lives okay. at the same time. So let's, let's make a risk here because so common man is at a risk here. Let's talk about the current model, how it's happening right now. Uh, I still have most of my Bitcoin at Coinbase. Coinbase is America's largest exchange based in San Francisco. A lot of, uh, um, a lot of fundamentalist cryptocurrency uh, uh, early adopters will criticize me and say, oh, you're not, they don't even give you your private keys. You don't even create your private key. And uh, if you die, uh, someone can't come in that you trust and use your multi-sig password because they don't have multi-sig yet. That's true. But if you do trust a third party, a custodian, then you are in control to make the choice that you want the banking model. I mean, that's what Coinbase is. It's the banking model. I have some advantages of cryptocurrency, but I'm still trusting a, a middleman to manage my, to my passwords. If I die, Coinbase has asked me the same thing a bank or an insurance company asked me. They say, if you're unavailable to withdraw your money, and if you have an executor who presents a death certificate to us or, or a uh, uh, power of attorney because you're no longer able to think for yourself. Um, who do you want? Do you want your brother, your child? Do you want 50% to this person? If that person's not alive, who do you want? Those same questions that your own teacher's pension fund or insurance company asks you. So uh, my child knows that I have a Coinbase account and she simply goes to them with the paperwork 
and with an adult and says, here's the death certificate, here's the court order, I'm the executor, I now need access to that money. So it, it still works. None of that has changed if you want that model. Now, that said, I'm moving away from that model. I'm moving to hardware wallet. I'm bu I'm buying, I happen to be buying the new Trezor Model T, which just came out. But if you, if you do switch to the hardware model, then you have to start asking yourself, what happens if I die? I mean, you can't get into that Trezor if you don't know the passwords or the seed words, plus a fingerprint or whatever else, you're going to layer on top of that for security. And the answer is, these standards are not yet ready for prime time, as you point out, but they are evolving. There's something called multi-sig. Multi-sig is, is very elegant. You can even create your own with PGP if you don't want to wait for the hardware wallets to add it. Multi-sig is where you, Jay Shree, say, well, you know what? If I die, here's a list of seven people younger than me. I trust these people. If any three of them put their password together at my funeral or any time six months or later after I die, I want my wallet completely unlocked for them. Any three of them in any order who put together their password. Or if one of them is my son, David, or my husband, Frank, then I only need two of them. You can create rules like that. And those things don't change unless you change them. So you, yes, there's a risk that other people will forget what you gave them. They won't remember. But you, you take a large enough group of people and a small enough number that are needed to collaborate after you can no longer access your money. This sounds complex. I know that. But it will become de rigueur. It will become standard practice. And it will be much easier to understand because just like people today have their list of Google contacts and their list of birthdays or their Facebook list of what's coming up next, people will have their list of trusted passwords for, for the custodial control of a friend's account. All that will be built into our daily thinking. It's, it's, it's unfamiliar today. It won't be unfamiliar to our children. It'll be standard practice. Uh, let, let's hope so. Now, let's talk about the cryptocurrency exchanges. It seems that these cryptocurrency exchanges, uh, which uh, matches cryptocurrency buyers and sellers, they have become center of attention for fraud. And uh, uh, there is a lot of technological dysfunction from what I'm hearing, you know, all based on, you know, all the different uh, uh, threats that are emerging from across nations. So do you think that the, at this state, the exchanges are secure? And what is the state of this currency exchange security? And if they get security breach, who is responsible? Can we trust these exchanges? And are these exchanges insured? Well, I, I don't think they're insured because insurance, at least in the banking industry, comes from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the national government of whatever country. And, and even that is only, only worth up to a, a small amount of money. I mean, in, in the United States, $100,000 per account. Um, so they're not insured. It's a matter of your trusting the custodian. And if they're a, a, a company that's, well, let's, let's use um, you know, Tracer, for example. They're not a, an exchange, but they raised 7 million last March. They just raised 75 million on, on January 18th. Coinbase did the same thing. They had three rounds of raising. When you raise that much money, you have a lot of very savvy investors, you know, your Hemberton Quists and your, your Northbridge Ventures. You have your big investors who start saying, we want to make sure our investment is protected. What are you doing? And that's where you start forcing them to have outside auditors, to have bonds on individual people who are walking in just like a, someone coming in to clean your home is bonded or someone to cut a tree in your yard. And you start 
feeling a little bit better about it. That's why I chose Coinbase. It doesn't mean that they can't lose a large amount of money. It means they're probably going to cover it if they lose it and arrest the people involved. Because if they don't, look how much some very big investors have to lose. Is it a guarantee? No, it's not a guarantee. But it it probably provides more security and assurance than some governments do when they guarantee a bank account. In the long run, I don't think the exchange guarantee is that important because you don't have to keep your money there. A lot of people are very surprised that Coinbase, when when um, last year, when uh, Bitcoin Cash was forking, and a lot of people believed it might be worth something, and it is, it's worth $1,300 a coin today. But a lot of people believed it was worth something. Coinbase wasn't so sure. There were, there were 14 forks proposed last year. Two of them Became, actually became real last year, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Gold. When, when Bitcoin Cash was proposed, Coinbase informed their users, we're not going to support it. And you won't have access to your Bitcoin Cash. So if you believe it might be worth something, we're telling you right now, don't leave your money at Coinbase. Put your money in just before a transaction and take it out just before a transaction. But don't put it, don't leave it in dur during the few days before and after the fork because if you keep control of your own money in your own wallet, your your Android or smartphone or your or your your uh, uh, your PC wallet or some other cloud companies, you will have the tool you need to fork it yourself, and and you'll you'll learn how to do that from whoever is helping you with your wallet. But we're not going to support it. Well, that that was a wonderful thing to tell their users. Now I happen to leave my money at Coinbase. Boy, was I sorry. Uh, I know you sometimes read my articles. I wrote an article that I just lose a heck of a lot of money because Bitcoin Cash went from 500 to 1,000 days after the fork. And I realized I lost it. Fortunately, in my case, and this isn't really part of the important part of the story, Coinbase reversed itself. And they said, you know what? There's a lot of value here. We're going to go back. We're going to take all the private keys. We're going to fork it and give you a wallet for your Bitcoin Cash. But I learned a lesson. I learned that this should not be my wallet company. This should be my exchange. And even trusting them as an exchange was pretty hard in 2017 because the fees blossomed to the point where you'd sometimes pay 10 to $30 to move $50 of money. That was ridiculous, but that was because of the fight between the miners, the vendors, the developers, and the users. Miners were beginning to, to create an auction for how fast a transaction takes place. They weren't satisfied with the money they were mining they didn't want to process the transaction if they weren't paid extra to put you to the beginning of the queue because the mining was backed up so much. That's a major problem, but that's a growth and evolution problem. It's all being solved this month. And by this month, I mean in the next few days, it's finally dying, that problem. It's dying because like it or not to the miners, they're adding Lightning Network, which creates these private channels to complete transactions offline. The money is moved between the channels and the blockchain doesn't have to know about it for a month or two. So that that's solving the problem. And other scalability problems are all being addressed. I mean, no one's going to allow their investment to be completely wiped out because of scalability problems. They've been a big problem because governance in a democracy is never easy. It's always sloppy. I don't take credit for that comment. I read that somewhere. But governance in a democracy is sloppy and Bitcoin is, is a very young democracy. It's a very, very disorganized. After all, it's peer-to-peer. -peer. There's no hierarchy. We're just learning how to deal with that now. But it is being worked out.
Now, there are things that are two different kind of exchanges, right? Centralized exchanges and decentralized. So, for consumers, common man, and security, which one's which one is better or preferable? Well, we talked at the beginning, and your first question to me, I, I mentioned that there's an evolution in in not just in trust, but in security and standards and best practices. Until that evolution takes place, the evolution that I believe is a year to 18 months off, could be longer, until that takes place, I personally trust a centralized exchange much more. And some big companies are getting into it now. Uh, large companies, and I think you're going to see some major banks making announcements soon because I consult to some of them. They, they, they don't want these new exchanges like Coinbase and Bitstamp to, to run away with this new model. So they want to get into it too. Even some of the huge investment firms that disparage Bitcoin, I mean, you know about Jamie Dimon and his uh, comments about, about uh, Bitcoin as a pyramid scheme. He's even reversed himself and his own firm is setting up lots of standards and practices. I happen to use Fidelity. Merrill Lynch, by the way, has decided no Bitcoin investments at all. You want to even buy into a mutual fund or something that deals with Bitcoin? Don't do it through us. But Fidelity has made the opposite decision. When I go into my Fidelity account, that's my, my broker, I immediately see all of my Coinbase holdings in real time on the left side of the screen. I can manipulate them right there in my Fidelity account. So they've embraced it to a point. I, th I think that the answer to your question is central exchanges for me. Good. Now, let, let's talk very briefly about computer security, the basics of it, because, because everyone is involved here and everyone uses uh, computers for the cryptocurrency. It, it, there is a need for them to understand what are the basics of computer security that they need to be aware about. And since we are responsible for our own security of cryptocurrency, since each one of us are kind of becoming their own banks and they yes. just be kind of their own personal banks. Yes. What do we need to know? Like, you know, what is uh, what are we supposed to know as far as the computer security goes? Okay. I, I like the comment, users are becoming their own banks. And that is the one uh, preparatory thing you sent me in an email. Uh, I thought a lot about that. Users are becoming their own banks because it's a decentralized uh, uh, mechanism. But what, if you have to put your finger on where is the bank, I would say the wallet is is what makes you a bank. And a lot of people don't understand what a wallet is. A wallet doesn't really keep your cash. It keeps access to your cash. Your cash is the ledger that's decentralized and on all the miners' computers. That's your wallet. So the wallet that you buy or that you use on your phone or your... No one should be using a wallet, by the way, on their phone or PC. That's, that's where real risk comes in. You certainly should not be using your, your wallet on your phone for anything more than 10 or $20. You should be using a trusted cloud account or a, a hardware device. I believe that the, and, and I'm not a shill for any of the wallet companies, I've had no direct contact with Trezor or Nano, Ledger Nano, but I believe that those will become the banks. That's what makes you a bank. And both of those devices, Trezor and Ledger just happen to be the two major ones. There's about 30 of them out there, but they, they, they have more than 80% of the pie probably 90% because they're, they're, they're entrenched, they're large. Uh, Trezor started in 2013. I mean, talk about early in the Czech Republic of all places. Both of those devices are so offline and so well conceived in terms of security. I'm not saying it's impossible to hack them or to it's not a hack that would happen. It's a spoof. It's a man in the middle attack, someone somehow getting involved in your connection. But Trezor and Nano have both moved your password entry and your end-to-end -end encryption off of your computer. 
you actually do that on the device before you even attach it to your USB port. So you're basically completely taking the security aspect offline. And then what happens when you plug it in? And again, I'm not claiming it's impossible to somehow fool it once you plug it in, but it's becoming very unlikely because of the, and partly because of the rewards that are out there if someone figures out how to do it. It's so much easier to just collect a million dollars in a reward rather than try and become a criminal and take a chance going behind bars. Rewards are an amazing thing. I mean, even Microsoft and Google realize that now. If you, the hacker, show us what we did wrong, we'll pay you. So you're not only uh, making money, but you're illegal. You're actually a white hat hacker instead of a black hat hacker. The same thing's happening with, with these hardware wallets. And they will be, they will take care of all the risk. They'll take care of the privacy. They'll take care of the banking aspect of it. I, I know I sound like I'm endorsing these things, and I'm not. I'm not endorsing them today for the average person. But they certainly are ready for the computer adept person. And like I said, give it a year or two, they will be ready for the average person. Sure. It'll be as easy as your leather wallet. Yes. Yes. But I mean, each one of us, if the common men are right now are investing in these cryptocurrencies, then they do need to do backup, right? So what is a good backup plan? What needs to be backed up? And how to keep these wallets that you're talking about? How to back up the wallets? Well, if you if you do... If you do have a little bit... Sorry, and where also? I mean, where should they back up? So what, what should the consumers know about this? With end-to-end -end encryption, where you back up, let's start with your last question. With end-to-end -end encryption, where you back up doesn't matter. Everyone talks about, is, is Amazon really secure? Is iTunes and Google Drive really secure? It doesn't matter if you're putting a well-encrypted file up there. So when you if you if you have a exchange or a wallet that you control the keys to, then I would just say, back it up everywhere. Back it up absolutely everywhere and make sure a good deal of loved ones know how to get at it. A good deal in case they forget what you told them. That solves the problem. I know it sounds risky, but it's not. If you're really encrypting it using a common encryption program like Veracrypt, and again, you won't have to learn Veracrypt or a common encryption program, this will be standard. But if you're, for now, just use an encryption program, use PGP or Veracrypt, and then throw it up on all your cloud accounts. Now, it's not quite that easy because if you use the wallet, you might invalidate some of the wallets you threw up there. You might have a new wallet. So it's not quite that easy right now. Again, standards, practices, give it a year. But for now, I trust a custodial account. I have, I have all of my Bitcoin in a single custodial account. Now, is that smart? In the long run, it's not, especially if they fork the coin again and they don't believe in the fork and the fork suddenly becomes a big deal. I've already experienced that one. But uh, as Trezor comes out with their new model and Nano Ledger S, that's a very viable option. I, I agree there is risk, but it's not that risky if you have a custodian that you trust. The custodian could be your brother-in-law, by the way. If you have a custodian that you trust and if they understand private, uh, security and backing up, that's it. Those are the only two concerns, security and backing up. The other concern comes from government, and that has nothing to do with your practices. Now, when you when the consumers, the government tries to back up the data, what's the file format they should be using? Is there any specific format where the in how the data should be backed up? There's several standards for portable wallet codes, but the standards right now, different wallet companies don't don't aren't interchangeable. So if you have the private keys to your wallet, the way in which most, it, 
the way in which most people back up their data, uh, I'll use this example, the Trezor and the Ledger, which are two completely different companies. They evolve separately, but they both do the same thing for backups. Your backup is a list of 11 English words or whatever your native language is, 11 words. That's it. As long as you record and can remember those words. Now, yes, that brings up another question. Where do you keep the list of words? Is it in your jewelry box or is it with your friends or is it in your bank box? I realize that's a concern, but we've just taken all your questions. What format is it in? How do you get it? We've just taken all your questions and we've reduced it to the format is 11 dictionary words. As long as you, that may sound like it's not very secure, but it's impossible. The odds are impossible that anyone else will have the same 11 words. It's just impossible. I don't even want to talk about how high the probability is. It's impossible. Um, 26 to the 11th to times the number of characters is too big of a number for anyone else to have the same 11 words. I realize it's not all random. They're words that are English language words or whatever your language is, but that's how you back it up. If, if I lose my Trezor wallet, or if it's crushed under the wheel of my truck, or if someone steals it from me, it doesn't matter. They can't do anything with it. There's nothing they can do with it. All I need to know is where did I store those 11 words? Or maybe it's the beginning of my favorite poem that my third grade teacher taught me. As long as my friends and neighbors don't know that poem, as long as it's they don't know which, as long as I haven't discussed that with anyone in my entire adult life, that's a perfect way to remember the words. You had to memorize the poem in third grade, the first 11 words. There's your 11 words. That's how easy it is to back up your wallet. Once you know those 11 words, you get a new Trezor or you get a new Nano, or and I don't know if they publish what they do with those words, but if they do, they should open source it. If they do, then it doesn't even have to be one of those wallets. You can do it with a computer. Once you know those 11 words, you can recreate your private keys and get access. Why, by the way, why don't you just remember your private keys? Because they're too long and they're too randomized and you shouldn't choose them yourself anyway. But the 11 words are like a passphrase. They generate the private keys. Sure. Now, there are many different kinds of wallets out there, right? So which one is preferable and uh, uh, how to pick a wallet? Like what kind of wallet should cryptocurrency users go for? Okay. Um, my favorite resource for looking at wallets is to go to Bitcoin.org. Right at the top of the screen, there's a, a tab that says wallets. The last time I looked, it was a tab. I'm not sure if, you, but it's one click away. When you go to Bitcoin.org, I think even Bitcoin.com, which is a separate site, you'll see wallets. When you go into wallets, a fascinating list comes up. And the list has, um, you, you can choose, I want to look at only the ones that work with cloud or, or hosted exchanges, or I wanna look only at the ones that run on Linux or Apple or Windows or Android. They actually, that, that's how they divide it. Linux, Mac, Apple, uh, Linux, Mac, Windows, Android. And many of the wallets are in multiple categories. Or I only want to look at the ones that let me take control of my private keys. Or I only want to look at the ones that have already added multi-sig, even though that's a very small fraction right now. And if you roll over the wallets, up comes a list of seven or eight security things that Bitcoin.org thinks is important. And there's a little red or green light there saying whether that company has implemented it or not. So you can find a wallet that implemented all of those suggested seven things, or you can go with the one that's the most popular. I happen to like the one that's the most popular. I love it a lot. It's uh, it's called Bitcoin Wallet. It's the one with the tilted orange B, the most popular symbol for Bitcoin, the orange B. And it's by a guy named Andreas Schilbach, not to be confused with Andreas Antonopoulos, who lectures about Bitcoin. 
The Andreas Schilbach wallet called Bitcoin Wallet runs on virtually every platform. He updates it daily. He's been involved with, in this since the very beginning, since the, since the white paper came out from Satoshi, and it works great. But again, I'm not sure I would recommend spending money directly from your smartphone. If you lose your smartphone and if you didn't keep a recent backup, you could be in trouble. So even though I have his wallet and when I teach courses, I give everyone his wallet and we all trade a few cents on Bitcoin back and forth and we experiment with it. I still don't think that's the smart way to spend Bitcoin. In uh, Years ago, 2015, 2016, I would tell people, keep a few hundred dollars if you're leaving on a trip so that you have money. You don't need that as long as, you, as, long as you have an internet connection. I mean, I don't know how it is in other countries, but nowadays Verizon will let you continue using your family plan in every country in the world just for pay $10 a day and, and you still have your plan available to you, the international travel plan. So just use your internet connection. Uh, you might want to still keep a few dollars local in case you don't have an internet connection. But to tell you the truth, no one's going to accept your Bitcoin if you don't have an internet connection because it requires the internet to validate your transaction. So the restaurant doesn't know if you paid and the car dealer doesn't know if you paid if there's no internet connection. Sure, yeah. that's a fair point. Now, there are, there are a lot of people say that you should put your cryptocurrency devices in a cold storage. Is it advisable, advisable to put cryptocurrency devices on a cold storage and lock up at a secure location? It, absolutely. Uh, I, I don't know about locking at a secure location, but uh, cold storage is 100% critical to anyone's safety. Um, just so that we are clear on what that means, you can do this or your custodian can do it. Um, Trezor, as I said, lets you enter your password on a little, on a screen separate before you even plug it in your computer. And of course, when you're done, remove it from your computer. There's no Wi-Fi built into it. So that's cold storage. The device is not on the internet. Um, Coinbase has a very interesting system. They added it three years ago. It's called the Vault. So they support five different wallets, your Bitcoin Cash, your Bitcoin, your Litecoin, your Ethereum, and they have something called the Vault. So if you have $100,000 at Coinbase, and if you're unlikely to do a major transaction in the next few months, you're only occasionally spending $100, leave $1,000 in your Bitcoin wallet, but take the other $999,000 and put it in the vault. The vault, you, you may ask, what is the vault? Is it, is it still Bitcoin? Yes, it's still Bitcoin. But what Coinbase does, and they've been audited on this. I mean, Andreas Antonopoulos went in and watched the process. Coinbase will take a drive physically out of their computer servers that, and, and the backups. They'll completely remove them from the computer servers and walk them down the street to another building, a shielded Faraday cage, a building with no internet access. And they won't put the drive back in a PC either, by the way. So that would be a pretty clever trick for a hacker to try and read what's on that drive. And then they'll take that drive and they'll put it in a building with no electricity in the room and no computer access and no Wi-Fi signals at all. Now, if you need that money, you've still got $1,000 in your wallet. If you need what's in the drive, you might have to wait 48 hours because it takes them a day or two to recycle which drives people are asking for and getting it back into a computer to get someone's money transferred. They do that once a day or once every other day. So for that slight inconvenience, the inconvenience that you might suddenly need $100,000, for that slight inconvenience, you've made your money far more secure. All this talk about but what if a hacker were really clever? What if they had a virus in Coinbase's computer that the security software didn't pick up on? Well, this takes it offline about as much as you can.
Yes, no, I, I I hear your point on that. Now, it seems that I mean, there is Bitcoin is not the only cryptocurrency. There are so many different, you know, cryptocurrencies, and there there is not just one wallet. There are so many different wallets. So, is it possible to use one wallet for all cryptocurrencies, or you need a you know unique wallet for each cryptocurrency? You you don't need a unique wallet for each cryptocurrency. When you when you choose a wallet company, uh, either online, of course, online you could have multiple wallets. That's fine. But you want to keep your life simple. You want your trusted wallet. When you choose one, or your Trezor or, or Ledger Nano, you one of your uh, decision points is which currencies does this support? For me, the important ones are Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, and Dash, which is a fork of Litecoin. Um, if if I don't see those three supported, I'm not going to buy the wallet because it can't support what the, the three cryptocurrencies that I'm interested in. Um, if you go to Trezor's site, which I did one minute before, that's why I was a few minutes late. I was checking out their site just before you and I started talking. There's a, a comment at the bottom of the page that says adding new cryptocurrencies every day. Now, I'm not sure what they mean adding every day because they list eight or nine of them at the bottom of the screen. Is that a partial list or do they mean they're upgrading it and making sure it's compatible every day? I'm not sure. I didn't have a, quite a chance to figure that out before we started talking. But naturally, if a new currency, let's say Monero or Zcash, starts to become popular enough that more than 1% of users, uh, cryptocurrency aficionados, are, are using it, it's going to be in Trezor's interest and in Nano's interest to figure out, is there some way we can get our hardware and our scheme and our firmware to work with this new cryptocurrency? And by the way, most cryptocurrencies are based on Satoshi's original reference code, which is called Bitcoin. There's very few. I mean, uh, uh, Probably the most popular one is is XRP, which people call uh, 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 Ripple. Ripple is not really a cryptocurrency. It's not a decentralized cryptocurrency. I'm not disparaging it, but it's not based. It's not the the peer to peer thing that people are talking about when they talk about cryptocurrencies. So some wallets have to be specially designed to make sure they can accommodate Ripple because Ripple is is popular. But if you're not Dealing with Ripple, your 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 options are enormous. There's everyone's covering the top seven or eight coins, and and let's be clear about it. Beyond the fifth coin, they're not very popular. So unless you're unless you're in a, a real geek or aficionado, uh, you're certainly not going to be going to your corner restaurant and paying with one of these other coins beyond the top seven or eight. It's just not going to happen because no one's accepting it for cash. No, I understand that. Now, uh, there, there are a lot of people who have concern about what kind of operating system or what kind of computer you are using with what kind of operating system because uh, this cryptocurrency is based on computers. You do trading on that. You hold, you save it on, you know, computers or phones. But each of them, with, irrespective of whether it's a computer or a phone or uh, iPad, or they all have operating system. So. The, does computer operating system play a role if we are talking specifically about the security of the cryptocurrency? And if it does, then which computers and operating system are recommended for holding cryptocurrency? It's interesting that you mentioned operating systems. The Ledger Nano, which is one of the most popular hardware wallets, boasts on their site that they designed a, an operating system for their little memory stick from the ground up for the purpose of security. Um, and many people... Uh, if you go to Reddit and the geek forums, many people will say, oh, you're using Windows when you do a transaction? Even if you're using a hardware device, you're a fool. You're at risk. And um, I, the, the point I was making about the Windows uh, detractors, it, it, while it's true that Windows evolved from the point of 
um, university students sharing information. The, the internet evolved this way. Uh, trusted communities, and then evolved to the point where people are doing commerce, and and there's people who want to steal from them. It, it's while it's true that Windows is somewhat less secure, and and that Windows um, attracts more hackers. I don't think it's true that when you are in a uh, when you are in a secure network mode, I mean, when, when you plug in your, your hardware wallet or when you go to an exchange, you're now not using Windows, you're using something called HTTPS. You're now using a form of, not a VPN, but a form of end-to-end -end packetizing and encryption. There are risks, things can still be hacked, but the operating system becomes less important because what's being overlaid on the channel is a system that says, you know what? Channels can be lossy, channels can be invaded, just like if I'm transmitting a signal to my, my soldiers on the other side of the world. The, the signal is going in the air. Anyone can intercept it. So we need a system that doesn't care if the channel is private anymore. It ensures us that what we're doing is private. Yes. So the same thing is happening with with uh, with transactions on the internet. There, it doesn't matter if the channel is lossy or if the overall system is insecure. What matters is that your use of the system is secure. So I don't buy it that Windows is less secure than other mechanisms. Now let's talk about the security software because this is again, you know, the computer security uh, fundamentals that uh, the consumers need to know. The common one because uh, the cryptocurrencies are uh, traded and stored on computers. The antivirus software, anti-malware, all these things come into play. So, what security software is recommended for cryptocurrency? You mean the OS, the OS security software? You mean like your Norton or McAfee? What you're using yes. to protect your PC? Yes. I tr truly hesitate to recommend one uh, PC antivirus software over another. I mean, I've used several during my career, and then there's several open source ones that are trustworthy. Um, I have a preferred one, but I, I, I hesitate to endorse one over another. Several of these companies have been my partners before, and uh, I haven't really done an, an, a deep engineering analysis of why I trust one more than another. I, I don't think I can be that helpful on that one question. Sure, no, that's a fair point. But I understand. You do have to run security software. You absolutely must run something that checks your everything you do on the browser and everything you download. Yes, absolutely. And I am hopefully, you know, not the free softwares that are out there because they all bring their own kind of vulnerabilities. Something, you know, premium, like you pay that and, you know, that will probably give you a little bit better security. Now, since uh, this needs to be cryptocurrencies, needs to be traded on exchanges, uh, do you recommend two-factor authentication? Because a lot of consumers are not aware about uh, what kind of authentication they should go for. Uh, would that matter, you know, as far as cryptocurrencies goes? I've only had experience with uh, Coinbase as far as online exchanges, and they won't let you set up an account without two-factor. They strongly recommend that one of those factors be Google Authenticator, and uh, they, they used to support another one also. I think they still do. But um, I certainly would never go without two- or three-factor authentication. They not only send me a text message to my cell phone, but just in case both my cell phone and computer were stolen at once, and maybe my computer has a password manager that types it in, they also send an email that says, we've noticed that this is a new IP address or a new computer, and they force you to jump through that hoop. Uh, it's it's it, it, 
even when I was teaching a class a few months ago, I, I had my phone with me, I had my computer with me. They still stopped me because they saw that I was using a public network somewhere. It happened to be the, the high school's public network. They stopped and they said, no, you're gonna have to go through these extra steps before you. And I just wanted to show the class how an account screen looked at Coinbase. So yeah, I would, I would never try to override or discourage all of those safety protocols. Sure. Now, a lot of people, they do these cryptocurrency investments, but a lot of them, you know, try to just invest all that in one coin. Do you recommend holding one cryptocurrency or diversify investment into several coins? And uh, at, at the same time, should they spread out their cryptocurrency in say, among several wallets or they should keep everything in one? I, I'm smiling at the question because um, I'm sort of on record as not believing that that cryptocurrency should be treated as an investment. I, I feel strongly that every investor. A lot of them do, right? A lot of them yeah, do. I do. I do too. It's how I make my money. But everyone who treats it as an investment is retarding the day at which it can be a functional currency, and they're contributing to the wild swings in value that scare everyone away. Uh, it, we we need to arrive at a day where the 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 most frequent transaction is the person who is spending, paying their staff, settling a debt or, or interbank transfers between the same way cash is used. We need a, a, to arrive at a day where fewer people are buying it because they think the next person is going to pay them more for it. And I don't know how we can solve that quagmire, especially when people like me are doing the same thing. But um, as far as your question on which, uh, how many cryptocurrencies, I firmly believe that there is one cryptocurrency of note, and that is Bitcoin. I believe that because not because it's the first, but because it's already achieved a two-sided network, which is not an easy thing to do. Now, Betamax, which was the original consumer VCR, achieved a two-sided network, and it was displaced by VHS through the marketing power of JVC Corporation and through some technical tricks. I don't think that can happen with Bitcoin. I don't think it's likely to happen. And the reason is, is because those are proprietary companies trying to get people to adopt their mechanism. Bitcoin is 100% non-proprietary. And so are all of the competitors. If you came out with a coin that was not free, that was not open source, and that was not truly peer-to-peer, and that was not, and that was, pre, and, and if it were pre-mined, if someone secretly had the first ten percent of the coin, and you didn't know who, and you didn't know how much was mined, then no one would trust the coin. It wouldn't even be on the market. No one would trust it. So right now, there are five serious technical problems facing Bitcoin. Everyone talks about it. The scalability crisis involves transaction costs, delays, the different interests of miners and users, the energy, the energy is ballooning out of, we talked about that on the last risk roundup that you interviewed me on. Uh, right now, Bitcoin's using more than some countries. This year, it'll, it'll exceed Argentina in electric use. If it became mainstream, it would be impossible to sustain. It would be an environmental calamity. All of those problems have solutions. And some of the altcoins, typically a Bitcoin fork, have solved it. The energy crisis comes from something called proof of work that's being replaced by something called proof of stake and by BFT transformations. All of these have solutions. In my opinion, Bitcoin can steal any of those solutions at once and throw it right into Bitcoin. It's already happened over 30 times. Bitcoin is free to take other ideas and just rip them off. I'm using the words of theft, but I don't really mean theft. They're free. They're available for anyone to take. Bitcoin can fold in the best transactions 
the best mechanisms that they choose to. And not only can they fold them in, but the other, I see all of the altcoins. I'm not talking about ICOs right now. ICOs in my book are scams. I see all the altcoins as beta tests. I see altcoins as go ahead, see if you can do something better because Bitcoin will love you for it more. Feel the love, do whatever you can. Right. Oh, therefore, now, do I have other coins? Yes. There are some very clever coins out there. Ethereum is ingenious. It was created by a genius named Vitaly Birkin. Is that how his last name's pronounced? Ethereum solves some problems other than just being a form of cash. It's a very advanced smart contract. Um, I happen to believe in Dash and in Bitcoin Cash. Um, so I keep a little bit. Not so much as an investment, but to play with it and hopefully to be there if it starts taking off. But I still believe that those advantages that Ethereum and that and that Bitcoin Cash and Dash have, I still believe that Bitcoin is going to roll them in. Um, two privacy coins, Zcash and Monero, have exceptionally unique features. Bitcoin's throwing them in this month. I mean, they're they're already being rolled into Bitcoin. So I don't see anyone as overcoming the fact that Bitcoin is half of the entire. There's look at coinmarketcap.com. There's 1,500 coins there. Bitcoin's worth half of the whole total. Sure, sure, definitely. Now let's go back to the you know security for the consumers. Now, just like you know, if you are doing a lot of financial work or anything sensitive, you want to make sure that you have a separate email address that. Uh, you know, not used for your day-to-day -day use, just, you know, separate email account. So it has less, you know, probability for uh, getting hacked or uh, it, it is not out in the common. So people are not, uh, thieves don't get access to it very quickly. So do you recommend that there is a need to have a separate email account for cryptocurrency? I don't see the need, but uh, I'm sort of an odd bird in this case because Everyone I communicate with has a private email address just for them. Uh, if I subscribe to Time Magazine, my address is Time Magazine subscriber at the domain I own. In other words, I have a catch-all address. Anyone who writes to the domain. Should uh, you be telling this on the internet right now to the public? You don't want I'm, to say I'm that. not recommending that everyone do that, but I'm involved in so many things that sometimes an address gets abused, sometimes even by a major company for some reason. Adobe, the people who make Acrobat, I once signed up for one piece of information, and now I'm being hawked scams every single day, sometimes over, over 200 a day, that come to my address, adobe at crypto.org. I just made up that address because anything at crypto.org comes to me. I just made up that address, and now it's not just Adobe writing to me at that address. It's a million people writing me. Somehow they sold the, the address. So by giving everyone a unique address, I'm able to just shut down that address just make it go into oblivion. And then if I really want the Adobe newsletter, I can write back to them saying, naughty, 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 please don't give my address out, but here's a new address for you, Adobe number two. Sure. I'm not saying that everyone does this. I used to run an email anti-scam company, and that was just a trick that's, I used. I understand. That's a fair point. Now, you had the crypto organization, so you everyone knows that you are involved with cryptocurrency and all that. But what about uh, all those, you know, everyone else uh, or most of the, the people who are not involved in the day-to-day -day crypto affair? What would you tell them that they should publicly advertise about their crypto life? Should people be putting on social media that they own crypto coins or, you know, they are doing cryptocurrency trading and things like that? Is it advisable 
for them to be publicly vocal about uh, their involvement in cryptocurrency because unless, of the they're, unless they're going to industry conferences trying to be a cryptocurrency evangelist unless, unless that's their career I don't think you would publicly talk about your investments any more than you would talk about the fact that you're invested in IBM and the company that makes this glass. Uh, you talk about investments with your investment community and your, your trusted friends, but I wouldn't go advertising my wealth, my lack of wealth, my, my investment strategy with, with uh, random people. Yes, absolutely. Now, I mean, there is a need for internet connection for doing anything for cryptocurrency unless you are putting it in cold storage. So should you be should the consumers be using public Wi-Fi or should they be using the Ethernet? What what uh, what is the best mode of uh, getting connected on Internet for from the security perspective? Um, it's a good question. Generally, public Wi-Fi is frowned upon for secure transactions. If you know how to look for HTTPS in your browser, you know how to look for that lock symbol outside of your browser window, it's really easy to spoof. But if you can see that it's outside of your own browser window and not a spoofed browser window, H public Wi-Fi is not a big risk. But the risk is that you might not know how to look for these things. You might not know the latest scams. So in general, my suggestion is that if you're in a public place and if you need to do something private, like use your brokerage account, use your cryptocurrency account, or send a love letter to your spouse, if you're going to do something that you want to know other people aren't looking at, create the Wi-Fi cloud hotspot yourself. Most people today, if you have a, a decent cell plan, can take their cell phone and just flip one little switch under settings hotspot. And now You've got a hotspot that 10 people can connect to if you give them the password. That's a much, much more secure channel. That's your relationship with the cell phone company, which is no different than your relationship with Verizon or Comcast or whoever you use at home. That is your much more private channel than the airport. When it, when it says Logan Airport Wi-Fi in Boston, you don't really know that that's Logan Airport Wi-Fi. It could be the guy sitting next to you in the Starbucks at the airport who's issuing that name. So, yes, I would say create your own Wi-Fi hotspot. Sure, it's the, absolutely. It's that the, is the right advice. Now, there's the also... Best. Sorry, go ahead. No, that, the, the, please finish that. Sorry about that. It's, it's truly the, the best um, use of these cell phone hotspots. Everyone thinks it's just to keep the kids busy when you're on a road trip. No, the best use is it's your private channel. You're now in control of the Internet. Yes, yes, then definitely. Now, uh, I mean, there is a trend. Everyone is using their phones, cell phone, smartphones to do trading or to, you know, keep their wallets on that. Mobile wallets, I mean, uh, there are risks to it, but there are still a lot of people doing that. So how to make sure that the hackers do not get uh, get control of your phone account by transferring the SIM card to their own device? Because uh, there have been incidents like that. So uh, what can consumers do to protect uh, their cell phone SIM, uh, SIM card, you know, what uh, What are the steps that they can take? That 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 has happened, as you know. And and uh, just because it's a phone and it has its unique uh, MESN number doesn't make it unhackable. Uh, so the, the answer is to follow the security protocols, for instance, that your exchange sets up. Coinbase, uh, you move a SIM card from one phone to another, Coinbase sees that because the MEISN, or what used to be called the uh, the hardware ID of the phone, no longer matches the card, and they get both pieces of information. 
They even use information from the carrier about the analog fingerprint of the phone, the fact that this transmitter has a slightly different characteristic than this transmitter in the phone. So I would say don't try to override or to ignore the security process. And, and it will become easier. It'll become to the point where you can ignore it one day. I want to be clear about that. You will be able to ignore it one day when it's baked in fully. It's just not quite there yet. Yes, absolutely. And I think there is also a way of locking your account with your phone provider so that nobody can, you know, get a copy of your SIM card. So that is also probably possible. I'm not sure, you know, with all different uh, providers, but there is a way to do that. Now, there's also uh, initially you talked about copying paste uh, the code uh, to make sure of uh, security. But at the same time, the copying paste feature uh, it also brings a lot of uh, security vulnerabilities because there are some uh, Trojans out there which uh, I think emerged a few years back or I'm not sure when exactly, but that can, that it just focuses on uh, uh, the feature of copy-paste. So as soon as you do copy-paste, it just you know takes that and information and before you are able to uh, do anything about your cryptocurrency they you know all your cryptocurrency is gone so should consumers double check their address uh, after copying pasting i mean there are a lot of uh, uh, okay because when you copy paste it just may go to the hackers you know and, copy and, paste uh, is, information. Copy and paste is susceptible to hacking i agree with that but what we're forgetting in what you're asking is that you're copying and pasting something that's public. You're not copying and pasting something that's private. You're looking to pay yes, yes, something sure. for something you just bought. Now, there is a risk that the seller is going to tell you, hey, you didn't just pay for it. That's not what I showed you on your screen. So, yeah, there are ways of dealing with that, and they will be baked in. They're not baked in now. For instance, after you copy and paste the code, you can ask the person, I'm showing a checksum of 48. And he's saying, no, no, no. My code comes out to a checksum of 22. So there are ways of dealing with that. Right now, nobody's asking that question. And you're right. It is a little bit of a risk. But the only it's not a risk that someone's seeing your wallet and that all your money is going to go. We're talking about you making a payment for a single thing to a public address. Yes, yes. But especially when you, you are trying to copy paste your private key, that is where, you know, probably you have to be very mindful about it. Now, uh, it, it seems that there are also phony cryptocurrency applications emerging. So how would consumers know which ones are, you know, genuine and legitimate uh, application and uh, which ones are not? How do they verify that? I do it by starting with Coinbase.org and choosing one of those wallets. These are companies that have all registered with the with the core group, the people who are maintaining the, the blockchain code. So it's less likely, I'll never say it's impossible, but it's less likely that when you see a wallet up at coinbase.org and you start downloading the wallet from there or from SourceForge, uh, there, there's basically two trusted sites other than going to the source. The source would be bitcoin.org. But uh, SourceForge and um, I don't, it's slipping my mind right now, GitHub. You go to one of these sites where you know that large, massive open source projects are maintained there. The code is maintained there. Even when I go to a trusted company like download.com, which is owned by CNET, I don't want to download directly from them. Usually they'll show the SourceForge link and I trust them better. Why? Because download.com adds all this crapware and these little checkboxes that you don't see that says, do you want this little browser search bar and all that stuff? So go to, go to a site you trust. For me, those are the two largest open source site projects in the world. 
source forged in GitHub. Sure. Now let, let's talk about crypto jacking because that really troubles me. That uh, this crypto jacking, there are no laws probably to prevent uh, anybody's computers in any format to be used for crypto mining. I mean, should there that be allowed? I mean, how can we prevent that? I, I, I mean, if let's say I don't want my, any of my computers or my phones or anything to be used to, for other people's uh, benefit, how, how do I prevent that? Because most of the consumers, they don't know about this, that uh, they are silently, you know, they're, they have no idea that their computers are being used for other people's profit who are doing mining and using their computers to get benefit. Okay, two comments about that. First of all, this is where the operating system security software that we talked about before comes in. I hesitated to mention the one I use. I use Norton Antivirus. Uh, I've been using it for years. I used to use Webroot, which is the green box, but now I use Norton Antivirus. Um, it's important that every once in a while, you go to your security software, which you never stop its weekly scans or its periodic scans, but those are quick scans. It's very important that once in a while you run the deep scan, which means you leave it running for an hour. And usually you can still use your PC during this process. But during that hour, it's running things that might get in underneath the operating system, what's called rootkit viruses, or some of these softwares that are very hard to check for in real time, like, like the crypto mining software. So one, it's important that you run deep scans. It's important that you run malware scans, which are not just viruses, but you allow it to also say, look, going in your browser to, to market to you. Are you sure you want this? Because we consider it a scam. So allow it to run those things too, because you're likely to agree with the people who keep those lists, even if the company is not stealing anything from you. And finally, um, the threat is not as big as you perceive it to be, or as some people perceive it to be. Because when someone steals your computer's power to do something for their benefit, it's wrong, it should be stopped, you should stop it, I agree. But keep in mind, it's to their interest to make sure that they back off when you touch the keyboard, that they never take your private information and that they avoid hurting you. Why is that all to their advantage? Because they are like a virus. They need to replicate themselves to get this mining power because you're the, you're the source of free electricity. You're paying for the electricity, not them. So they're spreading around this thing, but they wanna be as covert about it as possible and not to interfere with your private use and data. Because if they do, their game ends. But so I, I, I strongly believe that this should not be allowed. It should not be, it's not allowed, it's illegal, but, it, but it, yeah. and it's, infuri it's infuriating. But I'm just saying it's not as big of a threat as people perceive it to be. Sure, yes, it's you have to stop it. On your, using your resources. It's a personal fair. violation. It's a personal violation. You're, yes, it's it, 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 there should be right. And uh, we need to address that. But uh, let's, this is the last question. That uh, What happens to lost cryptocurrencies? A lot of people lose their cryptocurrency, right? They lose their key, they lose their wallet, the computer crashes, uh, all kinds of things happen. So what happens to those uh, cryptocurrencies? Where does it go? In, in cryptocurrencies based on the original blockchain code, which most are, if you truly lost access to the cryptocurrency, uh, one guy lost it at a landfill, as you may recall, his hard drive is at the bottom of a landfill. And after paying the landfill owner and other people figured it out and other people tried to sneak in, the landfill owner finally put an end to it, drilled cores through his land to make sure everything was broken and was crushed up. Um, if you truly lost access to your cryptocurrency and you can't prove that you were the owner of that cryptocurrency, it's lost. 
And what happens is the rest of the currency out there eventually, I know it sounds weird to say this, but the rest of the currency floats to accommodate that loss. In other words, the world isn't hurt by it because you can divide it into so many thin pieces. But you're hurt by it personally. You lost access to your wealth and everyone else's dollar is worth a little bit more now. But do you like if you were to recall two million dollars from the mint and burn it. That's, so there's no, way for, there's no way for recovery for that individual. Not, not, unless, not unless it's 10%, 20% of the whole pie. If you can prove that 10 or 20% of the whole pie was owned by you and no one else took that money and you never transferred it to, to anyone, then it's possible that you'll get all the miners in the world to agree, and they rarely agree on anything, but you'll get all the miners in the world to agree, okay, we're going to redefine the formula to block out that and reissue this. But that doesn't happen in real life. But, but I think technology can provide a solution. There needs to be digital identity tied to the, you know, cryptocurrency owners. It and should it, not be that difficult to do that. And I think not, that's not that difficult. I, I love what you just said, because in the future, those people who are not using cryptocurrency for its libertarian roots, but are using it because free, fast, simple transactions, which it's returning to now, they will be able to say, I want these things mitigated. I want reversal of transactions. I want right of refusal. I want a, a rescission on real estate transactions. I want the ability to re, a refund if I bought if I bought a rock instead of a PC was shipped to me by this company. Yeah, you can you can re-add all those things back in, and they are being added back in. And and about reissuing the currency if you pay it to someone that is the wrong person, I'm not sure how you would add that one back in. Standards and practices make it less likely to happen in the first place. Yes, absolutely. So this is my last question. What would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners who are really concerned about their uh, protect, how to protect their cryptocurrency and uh, concerned about their security, their, uh, their privacy and uh, all the risk that comes with uh, being anonymous and uh, the nature of the cryptocurrency that brings them so many risks? Well, keep in mind that currently Bitcoin users are not anonymous. They're, they can create a wallet anonymously, but where they spend it and how they use it can be tracked and it can always be tracked back to them. That's not that hard to do. It's not anonymous. You can use it with impunity and you can, and you can, you can buy something without that individual transaction being known, but the moment the next person spends it, it generally can become known if people want it to be. Privacy and security is an issue that is serious. I think it's the reason for our whole risk roundup today. I would say don't use it if you don't feel safe, but you will start feeling safer as you read more and more in the coming year because standards and practices are being baked into the system. And there was one other aspect to your question. I'm trying to remember what it was. It wasn't privacy or security. It was, do you remember what it was? I had a third point. It's, it's not on the tip of my tongue right now. That is fine. <laughs> Maybe credibility or... Uh... I, digital identity? Oh, yeah, digital identity. Um, it, it is being added back into the mix. In fact, that's one of the things, I don't want to plug my organization, but that's one of the things we're doing. Digital identity is something that not everyone needs every transaction to be private. If you pay a college, we talked about this example once before, if you pay a college $20,000 in tuition for your child and they aren't sure if they received it, you need to be able to, or they're not sure which child it was for or what date it was paid, you need to be able to prove things. You need to be able to say, it's not just my phone that says it, but here's proof that that was me paying for these courses. 
those things are all being added back in. When I say being added back in, it never was in cryptocurrency transactions to tie a payment to a receipt, a contract, an SKU number for an individual purchase, and to prove that you were the one behind that purchase. But those things are all being added back in only for the people who want it and only for the transactions that they want. That's the real distinction. No one will take away from the libertarians the ability to do something in the future and not totally anonymously even. I mean, Bitcoin is becoming quite anonymous in the next few months. That's going to scare a lot of people, but it doesn't mean that you have to use those features. You can do the opposite. You can make sure you're on record and that you're auditable if you choose to be. Sure. No, it's fair enough. That uh, uh, that is a good point. So thank you so much, Philip, for participating in Risk Roundup today. And we appreciate your thoughtful insight on cryptocurrency protection and more importantly for you and your organization's effort for developing cryptocurrency standards. Our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the understanding you provided on the state of uh, cryptocurrency security. And uh, even if a single individual or entity can understand the complex security challenges facing the cryptocurrencies and prepare themselves or protect themselves based on the understanding they receive from this discussion we had today, this Risk Roundup Dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. I appreciate the opportunity very much. I watch all your videos and I enjoy them all. You have a good mix of people. Oh, thank you. Wonderful. Uh, I'm glad that you uh, like what we are doing and what we are offering. Hope we are able to provide the value that we set out to do that in the first place. So uh, while, the, while there is a growing excitement that cryptocurrency marks the beginning of a new era for money, we need to take a pause and think about why we are trying to redefine and redesign this monetary system on the back of technology. The goal is supposed to bring accountability, reliability, transparency, fairness, and trust into our system. So while the current monetary system has its own flaws, the common man doesn't lose everything if their computer crashes or they forgot their password or key. So the question is, should we be creating a monetary system where thieves, hackers, and robbers become more powerful and common man loses? Risk groups, cybersecurity, geosecurity, and space security risk research centers are created for this very reason to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk facing NGIO in serious and means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. And we at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, Risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. It is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the Risk Roundups, to watch the Risk Roundup video or hear the Risk Roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupalacy.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayshree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.